Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies, Behind the Knife is looking to add three new fellows to our team this year. We are thrilled to be adding these positions as we've got big plans for the future and want you to be a part of them. We're working on countless projects that will make a real impact on surgical education, like our trauma surgery video atlas, comprehensive student curriculum, global surgery and innovation podcast series, and our specialty oral board reviews. We're looking for enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns, to build something new and exciting, and to innovate. You will benefit from ample support from the Behind the Knife team, the use of our brand new digital education platform, and access to all of our resources, including illustrators, video editing, and more. Get your name out there and build your CV by being part of the number one surgery podcast in the world. You will even get paid for your work on choice projects. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2024 and ending in June 2026. Only residents beginning their two-year academic development time will be considered, and the residents, institutions, and mentors must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due March 25th. Hello and welcome back, but I'm the Knife listeners to part four of this special series on pelvic exenteration surgery for locally advanced and recurrent rectal cancer. This series is brought to you by Behind the Knife and the team at the Colorectal Surgical Department at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, or RPA, here in Sydney, Australia. The team from RPA is Professor Michael Solomon, who is the head of the Pelvic Exenteration Program, Dr. Jacob Waller, an advanced trainee in general surgery, and my name is Killian Brown. I'm a colorectal surgery fellow. For each of the four episodes in this series, we've invited a different international expert in exenteration surgery to join us for the discussion. And today it's our pleasure to welcome Professor Gabrielle Van Ramhorst. Professor Van Ramhorst is a consultant colorectal surgeon at Ghent University Hospital and associate professor at Ghent University in Belgium. After completing her PhD in surgical training, she undertook fellowships in complex pelvic oncology at the Netherlands Cancer Institute in Amsterdam, and then here at RPA in Sydney. Professor Van Ramhorst has published extensively in colorectal and surgical oncology, and has both a clinical and academic interest in pelvic exenteration. So Gabrielle, it's great to see you online. Thanks for joining us for the episode and, and for being part of the series. Thank you so much for this honourable um, invitation, Kim. I'm very happy to join the sitting team online today. So today is the fourth and final episode in this series. For the first three episodes, we covered general principles of pelvic exenteration surgery, as well as some of the specific surgical techniques for anterior, lateral, and posterior compartment sections. So be sure to check those out if you miss them. But today we're going to talk mainly about reconstruction after pelvic exenteration, as well as some of the postoperative complications that can occur. So we'll start off with a case. Jake, a 71-year-old man who underwent total pelvic exenteration 11 days ago for a primary rectal cancer and had previously been treated with chemoradiotherapy, initially was well after the operation and recovering according to an expected trajectory, but over the last 24 hours or so has started to develop fevers. And you're asked to see him on the ward because he becomes tachycardic and you note that over the last 24 hours his drain output has been high and he has new perineal discharge. So how would you approach this situation? So I think it's important in these type of cases with post-operative complications, you need to 
go and see the patient and simultaneously assess and resuscitate them and also have a low threshold for starting empirical broad-spectrum antibiotic cover um, when they've got signs of sepsis. In this particular case where there's perineal discharge and a history of high drain output, my concern is primarily for an intra-abdominal source of, of this sepsis. Um, I'm going to be looking closely at the content of these drains and the discharge coming from the perineum. I mainly want to determine is this purulent, is this enteric, or possibly is this urine. I'd like to send the drain fluid off for a creatinine. I'd arrange an abdominal CT scan with oral and IV contrast to look for a pelvic collection or a leak. I'd also want to make sure that we have cultures of the patient's blood and conduit urine, as well as a, an x-ray of the chest just to exclude any other sources for the fever. Okay, so this is the CT scan. What can you see? So it's difficult on these two slices, but there's definitely a fluid collection in the pelvis, which is gas containing. It's a little bit difficult in these patients at this kind of time point. Most of the exenteration patients at the two-week mark will have some form of collection. Um, on these images, it's difficult to tell where this fluid is potentially coming from. And so the drain fluid creatinine subsequently comes back and is grossly elevated and you proceed with a CT intravenous pilogram, which shows a small amount of contrast extravasating from the right ureteric to ileal conduit anastomosis. So we'll step away from the case for a moment and talk about the reconstruction phase of exenteration. So this is after the specimen's been delivered. Jake, what are the systems or organs that might require repair or reconstruction? Yeah, so I think we've spoken a little bit about it in the, the previous episodes in the series, but firstly, there's urological reconstruction. So usually this is with the creation of an ileal conduit. However, um, as we spoke about in episode two, there are other options. Then in episode three, we spoke about vascular reconstruction um, and that it's only required if we need to excise the common or the external iliacs with the specimen. We need to think about restoring our intestinal continuity, especially in these patients where a conduit's been harvested. Ideally, we want to try and limit the number of bowel anastomoses if we can. Occasionally, we'll need bony reconstruction in the form of either sacral implants or a pubic bone mesh to restore continuity of the pelvic ring. And then finally, we need to close the perineal defect and then the abdomen before we mature our stomas. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about perineal reconstruction. Broadly speaking, as Jake mentioned, the options are to close primarily, or the alternative is a, a myocutaneous or other sort of flap. Gabrielle, could you tell us a little bit about the options and, and your general approach to selecting a flap and when you might use one? Yes, Kirin, of course. Generally, the risk assessment is based on the likelihood of encountering wound problems in the future in case you choose for primary closure. Uh, so we know that wound problems uh, such as dehiscence or infection or hernias are more common in patients who have undergone preoperative radiotherapy those who've undergone an extra nevator abdominal perineal resection, a secrectomy or a total exenteration, but also patients, for instance, those with anal SEC, can have large residual skin defects that need closure. So those could all be used as arguments to prefer flap over primary closure. And this has also been highlighted in a publication from your team by Jacobs in the British Journal of Surgery 2013. Of course, there are no randomized data with this type of choice in, for the reconstruction. Now, and sometimes, if you choose to omit a flap, 
and the patient does develop problems, you know, you can end up with the feeling of, and we should have, could have, you know, would have better used the flight. So it's very specific. And you know, sometimes, for instance, if a patient has a large incisional hernia, you would not choose an abdominal flap, such as a VRAM flap. But the majority of the articles on flap reconstruction after pelvic exenteration have used a VRAM flap, as well as for anal SECs. Other options include the gluteal region or upper thigh or gluteal fold or perineal flaps. And this will usually depend on the experience of your local plastic surgeon, if those were the ones who would harvest it. And so for those listening to the audio, but not necessarily looking at the video, uh, there's a comprehensive overview of uh, flap options uh, by Gabrielle's team, and we'll provide a link to that uh, article in the show notes. So Prof, what's your view on flaps? Uh, I think your preference generally at RPA is for a VRAM flap. What's the rationale for that? And um, and and generally speaking, when do you use a flap? For those watching, and I think those slides you've chosen give a pretty good summary of what it is. Probably only around 20% of all our exenterations we will use flaps, and they're mainly for large skin defects. So as you said, recurrent SCC or radiated skin is where we'll use it. And flaps don't prevent hernias. That's the first thing. So flaps are to prevent perineal wound breakdown or, or close large defects for us really and the ones we mostly use are the VRAM which on, on those looking at it we usually use the vertical VRAM as opposed to the horizontal VRAM and you've, you've got to bring into account your stomas and where the stomas are going to be particularly when you've got double stomas and I think we wrote up an article about how to measure where the new stoma site will be from where the stomal therapist measured it after it VRAMs and sometimes bilateral you know, VRAMs, but that's pretty unusual. So that's the principle there. I think during the time of exoneration for the last 25 years, we've gone through cycles where people were doing flaps for even simple APRs. And, you know, I, I think we've seen that cycle go through and they're very big defects and the flaps don't fill the empty pelvis really. I mean, people go around saying, do a flap, that'll fill your empty pelvis. But I think after an exoneration, the whole pelvis is empty and a flap all it is is sitting down on the skins it's not the answer for the empty pelvis so i'll use in that bottom right hand is a gluteal vy for a morbidly obese patient with extensive perineal skin that's been placed in the prone position it's very hard to get a fat abdominal vram down through a narrow pelvis so that's really for obese people with a lot of perineal skin and the gracilis, which is not a robust and not a very big one, is really for wound breakdown further down the track where you just don't want to go into the abdomen again. And it's a, a fairly narrow and not deep. And in that case, down the bottom left, we're trying to cover some small bowel where there's no vagina and no pelvic floor at all. That's probably broadly the principle. But it, again, as Gabrielle said, it really depends on your local plastic surgeons, what they're happy to do and, and how big the, how big is the defect. And Gabrielle, the general preference at, at your unit, and I won't ask you to speak on, you know, the whole of Europe, but is there a lot of variation in people's preferences? Well, in our institution, we, we prefer to VRAM flap, also because it's a relatively easy flap that usually can be harvested by like one of the registrars. It's quite a reliable flap as well, with very low rates of flap loss, flap necrosis. So that's an advantage. It also can be used for vaginal reconstructions, but some other centers would prefer to use bilateral grassless flaps 
So that, that would be another option. And I know that from the Scandinavian and some UK centers, the PY flat is generally preferred. Fantastic. Prof, um, we talked a lot about VRAM. Could you just broadly take us through the steps of the operation and any specific sort of pitfalls that people should be aware of? Oh, pitfalls. I know lots of them. Uh, I agree with Gabriel. Just, I did forget the poster of vaginal reconstruction is really important for a VRAM or a flap where we've preserved the bladder and the anterior vaginal wall. On the top left, it's just measuring the flap out and, and taking into account their build, what their Langer's lines are of healing, as well as you know their fat in the abdomen because you've got to raise the skin to close over. I use proline mesh to replace the rectus. We usually preserve the posterior rectus sheath to cover the bowel inside, and we close, so we primary close the posterior rectus sheath to the contralateral linear and raise flaps of skin and fat on each side, anchor the proline mesh down to the pubic bone. And you really got to do that, otherwise you'll get hernias uh, on the pubic bone. And then so that in, and then I usually bring the stomas out lateral to the linear semilunaris, which is where we put the lateral edge of the proline mesh. Uh, and importantly, watching that epigastric when you're closing the abdomen you don't kink off the uh, inferior epigastric. The VRAMs are a lot easier to get down when when you do a complete pelvic exoneration and also when you take pubic bone because it's almost flipped only one or two centimetres on the vessels. When you've still got a prostate, you've still got a bladder and you've got to bring the VRAM underneath the anterior compartment, then it's a little bit trickier. You can mobilise the bladder and bring it down through the muscle if you really can't get it down underneath a large prostate and, and bladder. Okay, so Gabrielle, you did a lot of work on uh, flaps and uh, quality of life and other outcomes. So what sort of things can go wrong after flap reconstruction? Well, clearly, of course, we have a wound that needs to be constructed and wounds, especially in this area, you know, can get infected or abscess formation. Also, the essence is quite common, and some of those essences would be very minor and would only, you know, need some bed dressings in the ward. Uh, but if you, if you have a major complication and you need to, for instance, revise the flap for partial necrosis or even complete necrosis, now the patient uh, goes back and forth into theatre, and um, that can have a major impact on the patient's uh, physical um, activity, especially in the first month after surgery. What's also fairly uncommon, but still very annoying if that occurs, is enteroperineal fistulas may occur, or ulcers, or chronic sinuses, which can have a, a great impact, a negative impact on patients' um, sitting abilities and overall physical activity. So Prof, have you got anything to add on flap-related complications? I think invariably after a radiator, particularly if there's a sacrectomy, the top end of the back will separate a little bit. And it, as Gabrielle said, it just really requires you know, local wound care. I'm a bit nervous with back dressings uh, when you've got a uh, small bowel anastomosis with a conduit because we've had a few fistulas related, I think, to, to, to vac pressure. So I'm a bit nervous about using that. That's the only thing in the early post-op period. Flaps don't really prevent either small bowel leaks or conduit leaks, so they'll separate as well. And that's why I think the VRAM is the most robust one compared to gracilis. But all of the normal flap complications occur, but as always in an increased incidence and um, non-exenteration patients. 
I can maybe add to this that you know, if you have a urinary leak that needs to be treated aggressively or any flap will dehiss. And with regards to donor site problems, like major donor site complications are actually quite rare. But even if you reconstruct the abdominal wall after harvesting a BRM flap with a mesh, up to 13% of the patients will develop an incisional hernia, uh, which can be challenging to treat in these patients. Prof, I was just going to ask about the use of uh, mesh in the pelvis to try and keep small bowel contents away from those wounds. Is this something that you do? And could you just broadly take us through the principles around pelvic meshes? Well, there's a lot of different types of mesh, whether they're you know biodegradable meshes, whether they're permanent mesh. I think when there's bone, particularly the pubic bone, and particularly if you take the whole pubic bone, you need to reconstruct the pubic bone, otherwise there's nothing to attach your residual abdominal wall and, and rectus, and you get a, uh, the whole abdomen collapses down to the sacrum, and that's impossible to get stomas. So we'll tend to use proline for the pubic bone and then reinsert the penis, reinsert the rectus to the proline. It doesn't, have, And that actually gives excellent support. So for bone, I'll definitely use proline. For perineal hernia repairs, I'll use proline. Well, I won't use proline just as a routine pelvic floor, and because it's a permanent mesh and sepsis of the empty pelvis is such a common problem. So we've tried a whole host of different ones from Stratus, BioA over the years. The one on the right's a BioA, I think. Uh, and probably that's the one we would use the most for a very empty pelvis. But it's still gets infected, we've had to remove more bioways than anything else, and it's quite hard to get out when it's partially degraded as well. So I don't think we've got the answer for mesh, but mesh mesh is really to stop perineal hernia. Perineal hernia perhaps isn't such a big thing in exaggeration patients as it is in smaller resections. If you have a small hole and you're squirting small bowel through it, you're more likely to get strangled when you've got a monstrous defect, no sacrum, then it's really just the whole descending abdomen, which is quite manageable uh, just with double underpants wearing or even a, a support. And Gabrielle, what, what's the practice in your center? Do you use pelvic mesh or? Well, we don't have any biological mesh stocked as it is. And as Prof said, you know, I'm hesitant to also insert and in, in non-absorbable mesh in the pelvic floor for the primary surgery. So we do rely more on, on flat repairs and mesh repairs. But the biological mesh is an interesting study published by Block and Annals of Surgery in 2022, which was the long-term follow-up of the Biopex study. As you may know, that study was actually negative in the first uh, short-term findings as the 30-day wound healing you know, was not different between primary closure and the use of biological mesh. But after five years, like 7% of the biomash patients had developed a perineal hernia versus 30% after prior closure. So even though no improvements were found in quality of life or functional outcomes between the groups, this fact described after extra levator abdominal perineal resections does make one think about who to use biological mesh in. Mm, it's an, an interesting point. Prof, we briefly kind of talked about uh, the reconstruction of the pubic bone. What about after secrectomy? When do we require uh, reconstruction of the, the bony elements? Well, you only need 
support of the pelvis if you lose the whole of S1, both front and back, and then you've lost the actual support of both of the spine and also of if there's no sacroiliac joint, then they can't walk really because it collapses in. So if you have to take a complete S1 out and with no S2, obviously, and all the way down, then you need to put some form of bridge in to support the pelvis. And we've been using titanium 3D reconstructed prosthesis, which are the two on the photo. And that's fine when they're primary bone tumors or chordomas or that. But once once you're doing recurrent rectal cancer or advanced primary when you're doing bowel and conduits, the infection rate and explant rate is really high. So I think 3D reconstructed S1s are for primary bone tumor exenerations where you're just getting the bowel out of the way and there's not opening of bowel because the complications and the empty pelvis and sepsis with a titanium implant or any implant is a really bad thing. So we've also gone more over the years. We've done over you know 440 sacrectomies now of not of doing the anterior cortex of S1 from the front and not leaving the posterior support so that that acts as the support and not putting any implants in if we have to do high sacrectomies. And I think that's taken a lot of the morbidity out of the high reconstructions of the segment. So just back to the case, the patient, as we said, had a small but clinically significant leak from the right ureteroileal anastomosis. That improved with antibiotics, nephrostomy tubes, and the drain that was in the pelvis. And a repeat pilogram two weeks later showed that there was no contrast extravasation and the clinically the leak had dried up. Unfortunately, the patient did develop dehiscence of the perineal wound and a chronic perineal sinus requiring dressings in the community. Which brings us to the empty pelvis syndrome. So this is something that we've talked about through this episode and others, but perhaps we can address it specifically. So Gabrielle, how do you conceptualize this issue? You know, what is it? I know there's no agreed definition, um, but how big a problem is this in exenteration surgery? I'm afraid that antipelvis syndrome is actually very common, depending on which definition you'd like to adhere to. The University of Southampton and, and Charles West is investigating with, within the pelvics collaborative and how this should be defined. And what they've suggested is that antipelvis is a spectrum of complications, including pelvic sepsis and bowel obstruction, perineal sinus and fistula. But most of this has to do with the large void that's being generated by the um, radicality of the surgery and the migration of the bowel into this void. So the complications that you know occur uh, are the ones I just mentioned, such as bowel obstruction, uh, which can occur quite late after surgery, but also immediately after surgery. And many patients will need drainage and antibiotics for infected pelvic collections. And intraperineal fistula occur quite yeah. frequently in patients who've had uh, problems in this area. Okay, and so what about prevention, Gabrielle? Are there any techniques that are proposed and that work to reduce the incidence? Well, I think uh, one of the most you know common concepts is to keep the pelvis as full as you can by, for instance, saving the uterus. So. So if you don't need to perform a hysterectomy, you might just keep it in so it fills up the pelvis. Also, you can fill up the pelvis with no mental plasty. The patient has enough 
momentum that can be brought down into the pelvis. A flap, you know, is not, it's most likely to close the skin defect, but not always likely to fill up the pelvis as Prof already enlightened us. There have been descriptions of the use of, for instance, breast prostheses within the pelvis, but I've not heard many people being enthusiastic about this and implying this in the clinical practice. And so, Prof, in your experience, have you used uh, some of these techniques that Gabrielle's mentioned in terms of amentoplasty and breast implants, and what do you find works or doesn't work? The omentum we'll always use if we got any omentum and getting it all the way down. It's really good for covering bone, raw bone. That's what I think it's really good for. So it doesn't fill the pelvis at all. All it does is coat the empty outside of the pelvis. Rarely do you have, in the size of the defects we're talking about, enough omentum. There's never enough omentum and blood supply to get it down if it's that fat anyway. But it's I will definitely use it always for the pelvis, but mainly to cover you know raw bone. It's also good if you've put proline mesh in to reconstruct the anterior bone, then use, I often use the omentum, or you have to reconstruct the inguinal ligament with proline mesh, which I often do, which I use for that, and then using the omentum to coat the inside of it. So you've got a almost a dual mesh, but you're using the omentum on the inside so the bone doesn't stick to it. So that's where I'll usually use the omentum. For those watching at that slide on the right, that's someone who's had a high sacrectomy and really, you can see there's absolutely nothing left. These gluteus muscles have been atrophied. They've lost their nerve and blood supply. So there's really nothing that will fit or long-term prevent that. And I think he's actually got a... I'm not sure. I think we may have used his rectus muscle even in that. But he actually thought there was no problem. He thought he had a normal bottom. So he wasn't in any... He wore a couple of underpants tighter, that's all. And that really just shows the difference between a wide defect and a narrow defect. And so what about... Managing um, some of these complications specifically, Prof, I mean, probably from a reoperative surgical point of view, refractory bowel obstruction and, and perineal fistulas, probably the most difficult to deal with. So when do you operate on these and how do you operate on these? I guess they're all from bitter experience uh, that I'll comment. But the one thing going back just before I go to that is that if you scan everyone who's had a real exaneration at any time, there is a fluid-filled cavity and radiologists are always causing, saying this could be infectious. Anyone has a fever and they do the scan, the infectious disease people want to get it drained or the wound open, just don't do that because you open the wound, it never heals. You drain it and it's still there, so really leave it alone and, and prepare a patient. If, you, if someone does do a, a CT when they've gone home, that they're going to say there's a big collection and don't let them touch it. That's the, the first thing I'd say. The second thing is, Invariably, you have to fill fill up with the small bowel if they have any sigmoid or the cecum's quite a good thing. If they've, if I've done a conduit, I'll have mobilised the right colon to bring the enteroenterostomy to keep that up in the abdomen. You can drop the cecum down in; that's quite good filler of the pelvis. But it's invariably the small bowel that finishes up. And then if you finish up with a small bowel obstruction, I think we sit on them for a long time. They often take two weeks to get going, so don't race in to do anything. Eventually, it will unblock. But if you have an empty pelvis and you have a small bowel obstruction, the, the, the aim is not to go in there and, and take all the loops out of the small out of the pelvis, straighten them up because they'll all drop back in again and you'll finish up with the obstruction. So the, the aim is to find the afferent and efferent limbs uh, that are going into the pelvis and do a side-to-side -side bypass, leaving it in as the filler of the pelvis. So don't if you try and get them out into raw bone 
attachments, you'll finish up with fistulas, you'll finish up with lost bowel. So if you have a chronic small bowel or even a more acute small bowel, then do a side-to-side bypass and leave the obstructed area, if it's viable, in the pelvis. Similarly, if you have an entroperineal fistula, then do a bypass, but in that case, do an exclusion bypass because you want to make sure that the small bowel content doesn't uh, go back into, continue to go down to the perineal wound, which may be the easiest track. And the other thing for those watching is if you do the exclusion bypass, make sure you leave the blood supply to the bowel that you're leaving in to the pelvis, but also sew the staple lines away from the original ones because I've had a couple of where they've actually reopened into the staple line and started the perineal fistula six months later. They're all bitter experience ones there. Okay, so, I mean, we've talked about some of the specific complications of exenteration surgery. Obviously, this is radical surgery and and all sorts of things can go wrong. And I think in one of the earlier episodes, Prof, you said they all get complications. It's just a matter of which one. And um, these are just some of the sort of more surgically uh, specific complications that can occur. Um, any final comments, Gabrielle or Prof, on, on complications in general after exenteration? I mean, how do you how do you counsel patients about such radical surgery where, you know, you're expecting that almost all of them will develop some small complication, if not major? Yeah, I think in the decision-making, I think it's very important to be honest with patients. And, you know, if you're really honest and you tell them, you know, you will probably get a complication if it's during the surgery, it will be A, B, or C. And the week after surgery, it will be D, E, or F. And the two weeks later, it will probably be an abscess, you know, or pneumonia or an infected fluid collection. Then people actually understand that you know what you are dealing with and that you're used to managing these patients. And also think it's worthwhile to explore what people expect from surgery. You know, and it's so much easier to make these decisions in patients who have a lot of pain, you know, with tumors growing into the prostate, who can't sit anymore, for whom a pelvic exenteration will actually be a relief, you know, instead of like 75-year-olds actually have an ex- uh, and a very good quality of life, not dependent on anything or anyone you know, to counsel them to have two stomas and undergo this radical type of surgery with the associated morbidity and, you know, possibly even mortality if the patient is in a bad bad condition, you know. So you really have to reflect on what you can bring to these patients and what you're trying to achieve. You know, if there's any space to prehabilitate the patients or to reconsider or use other options, you know, an honest conversation with the patients will also help them to accept accept the consequences of the operation in the long term. Off any comment? Absolutely, and I think Gabrielle's explained it really well. I think prehabilitation and particularly psychological counselling, pain control, diet, you know, physio, they need to be in the right ballpark of what they're going, what they're about to start. I think a lot of them come to us sometimes now. And they just said, oh, look, it'll just be like your previous operation. And really, you've got to get them out of that ballpark and into the monstrous thing they're getting into. And I think in palliative exenerations, you've really got to be, you know, you've got to, you can't, you don't palliate them for, it takes six months to get over an exenteration. So if you're looking for short-term palliation, it's really not the operation you should be doing. So I think getting the patient into the, the ballpark of what's going to happen 
broadly speaking, I tell them everyone gets a complication and, and how you handle the complications is really what the specialization of exaggeration surgery is. And so it's not just prehab, it's also rehab. You can't just dump them out into the community without a support service for someone after an exaggeration. So that's extremely important for centres to make sure you have prehabilitation and rehabilitation set, set up for those patients. Otherwise, they get, you know, they just get isolated and with no no one to contact them. And not surprisingly, most people don't want to touch them because they're really nervous about what's going on. So I think prehab, rehab, and the consultation and get them to see, psycho- we have a psychologist, who, a psycho-oncologist who works with us, and we have a psychiatrist as well as a pain specialist. And remembering a third are malnourished who come into an exaneration in our center, and a third are already hooked on chronic opiates by the time they get to it. So you've got to be prepared for all of those things to get them through the procedure. But then also I always say it's apples and oranges, what some people call an exaneration really is just another abdominoperineal excision. So I guess what we're talking about is what you've really seen. A major bone is in more than 50% of ours. So, you know, I think there's uh, apples and oranges in what we're talking about as well. In some ways, you've got to be a bit cruel at the first consultation to get them in the right ballpark and then, and then, and then get them working with you. And they've really got to work with you and you've got to work with them physically and mentally to get them through this. It's a big onslaught. I don't think there's a bigger one in the body in terms of the recovery. So that's all we have time for today in this episode. And it also brings us to the end of this special series on pelvic exenteration for locally advanced and recurrent rectal cancer. Jake and I would like to thank Professor Gabrielle Van Ramhorst for joining us today and providing her comments and insights. And also we'd like to thank Behind the Knife for making this possible. Most importantly, we want to thank Professor Michael Solomon for supporting this project. And on behalf of the Behind the Knife listeners, thank you, Prof, for sharing your extensive experience in exenteration surgery. For those of you who want to know more, we've provided lots of references to videos and other technical articles in the show notes. And so you can have a look at those. Um, And if you do have any questions, feel free to get in touch with us here at RPA. Thanks again. And don't forget to dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.